are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. If you're our guest again, welcome. Thankful that you've chosen to worship with us this morning on this fun celebration for us as we will celebrate some folks this, this service as we did last being baptized. We'll get there at the end, but let me give you a couple updates. So last Sunday, uh, if you're a regular here, you know that our, our entire offering went to uh, an organization called Wycliffe. We every year partner with them to provide the Word of God to a people group that does not have the Word of God in their language. And every year we adopt a new people group and try to raise the funds for that people group. And so this year, uh, the goal uh, was a two-year goal of raising $200,000 for uh, a group of uh, folks that are about 5 million people in their people group that do not have the Word of God in their language. And so last week, the entire offering went to that. And we, you guys were generous and gave, I think the last number I heard was about $135,000. So praise God for that. Thank you for your generosity. And so we talked this week. And because uh, you guys are so generous and we, God has blessed us as a church, we're just going to bump up. We have some missions funds available. So we're going to add 65000 to that. And we're going to close out that project of $200,000. One more people group that you guys have been part of. Think about this. You will meet people from this group. I can't tell you where it is, who it is, because of the sensitivity of the project. It's a hostile place uh, in, in Northern Africa. But so, you, you know, that's as much as we can tell you. But uh, there will be people in heaven that you will meet one day because you were generous and they heard the word of God in their own language, in their mother tongue, uh, and they came to faith in Christ. And so that's, that's what we're about. You guys are such a generous church, and so we're grateful for that. So that's six. We've done six projects so far with Wycliffe over the last six years, and so next year will be number seven. My goal is, if God allows me to stay here, for us to do at least 20. Uh, there's about 3,000 left in the, in the world, so you guys are doing your part. Uh, so I'm excited about that. So thank you for that. I got some homework for you. That's the second kind of thing. And so some of you are off of school. You got nothing to do anyway, all right? So this week, uh, somebody challenged me to do this about 25 years ago, and, and I've Try to do it every year. And so I want to kind of challenge you guys to do it this year. You got nothing else to do. I mean, the Georgia Tech game, that's over already. Sorry. It's not, you know, just admit it. We know it's over. It's fine. Georgia Tech's going to be your boss one day. Georgia's going to beat you in football. That's the way it works. Okay. So we understand that. But I want you to take 15 minutes on Thursday or Friday. Um, it's Thanksgiving for us. And spend those 15 minutes uh, in prayer but don't ask God for anything, all right? Which is our tendency, right? Well, you know, Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this food. And then you go into gimme, 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 right? Uh, you know, traveling mercies, whatever, right? Spend 15 minutes just thanking God. It's hard, actually. It's more challenging than you think because you tend to gr- gravitate into the request, which, again, it's not, it's not wrong. It's not wrong to cast your anxieties on him. It's not wrong to make your request known. But for one moment, just spend 15 minutes and just be thankful. Because the mark of the follower of Jesus is thankfulness. And, and you'll see how often we move to the please, please instead of the thank you, thank you. And so it's just a, a way to cultivate thankfulness on a holiday where we say we're, we're thankful. And so I challenge you to do that this week whether Thursday, Friday, or at some point, get away, go into a closet, go on a walk, something. Uh, just you and God and thankfulness. And so that's your homework for this week, all right? And again, football game's already over. You got nothing to do, all right? So uh, let's do that together. Go ahead, and, and if you have a Bible, turn to First Peter. 
First Peter. We have been in this book for 14 weeks. Today is the last, week 15, and we're going to close out Peter's letter that we started back in the end of the summer. Uh, many of you know that I, I kind of, one of the things I like to read, I like historical biographies. It's one of the things I read for pleasure, that and science fiction. Uh, people think, oh, you must read a lot of theology. No, I don't. I read a lot of science fiction and uh, historical biographies. But I really am fascinated with the, uh, the period of America's history of World War II, that area. And, you know, the, when the Band of Brothers came out 20 years ago, you know, the, the miniseries really got interested in those group of men. So I've read every single one of their biographies uh, from Captain Winters to, and I, I'm finishing the last one uh, this past week, I'm actually almost done. And it was my, my favorite one so far because it's the two guys that are from Philly. Uh, if you're familiar with the, the series, it's Wild Bill Garnier and Babe Heffron. All right, some of you have no clue uh, what I'm talking about, but some of you do. And these guys were, they were heroes. They were paratroopers in a time where that was a very new thing. And, and the reason I love a historical biography is because you get the details that the miniseries and the, and the summaries don't give you. You get their background and you get what they're thinking and you get all the funny little things that happened that wasn't, didn't make it into the miniseries. You get their life after, some of their struggles. It's just real. It reminds you that this is just not some you know, fictional thing, that these men were real, real families, real fears, real friendships, real hurt, real disappointment, real struggles. It just it reminds you that, that this, is a, this is a real thing. And when we come to this section of 1 Peter, I think about that because we tend to think this is, you know, Peter is, is the apostle and he's writing and he's doing all these things. But these, this section here, on the surface, it seems like he's just saying, okay, y'all, been great, been fun, see y'all later. And it kind of is. But the details that he kind of reveals to us remind us these are real things. These are real people. These are real circumstances. Peter's a real guy who really love these folks. And these are real people who are struggling and wrestling and have life and, and it's just hard. And reminds us that, yeah, this, this is real. This is, they're just like us. And in his closing, he's gonna give us some details that we haven't gotten anywhere else uh, that I think for us as we close out this book will be encouraging for us to remind us what it is to be an exile. So we're gonna look at chapter five, the closing arguments or the final greetings as your Bible will list it that aren't, you know, it's not the most exciting passage. You'll, as I read it, you'll be like, yeah, that's, that's super interesting. But I think there's some deets in there, some details that you hopefully will find encouraging. And hopefully uh, I can bring those out to you today uh, as we kind of lead into baptism. So 1 Peter 5, we're gonna read verses 12 through 14. And again, one last time, remember, he is speaking to exiles. Those who are, because of their faith, they've been ostracized. Life has got challenging and he's trying to encourage them, don't quit, don't waver, don't compromise, don't just be an angry fighting person that's always mad at everything. I want you to stand firm. I want you to persevere. And, and he's just doing what Peter was challenged to do by, by Jesus himself, where he says, Peter, you love me? Take care of my sheep. Care for my lambs. Feed them. Love them. And that's what Peter's been doing for, for four and a half chapters. Let me read our passage. By Silvanus... A faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. 
Exciting, right? Haven't probably heard a sermon on a passage like this in a while. So today will be your first. But here's how he starts. He says, Bio Silvanus. Silvanus is the Latin name for a guy named, probably familiar to some of you, Silas, right? His name is Silas. It means from the forest. He's a hunter or something. I don't know. But that's who he's talking about. And he says, he's a faithful brother. I have written through him, whatever that means briefly, which is kind of funny to me because it hadn't been that brief. Brief would be like, what's up? Peter here, praying for y'all. Peace. That would be brief. He's given us five chapters of some meatiness, right? And some heavy deal, heavy issues. But he says, by Silas, I've written to you. So what does that mean? A couple of options. Number one, some people suggest that Silas is the one who would carry this letter. It wasn't to one specific church. It was to a group of churches in modern day Turkey. So he would carry the letter to one church. They'd read it. They'd copy it. He'd go to the next church. They'd read it. They'd copy it. They'd read it. Go to, and they keep going all throughout the area. That's possible probably likely that he did that. Another option is that Silas functioned as Peter's amanuensis. It's a fancy word for secretary or administrative assistant, where Peter would dictate, write this down, Silas, and Silas would write it down. Also very possible, right? Maybe he did both. It's impossible to be dogmatic, but here's what I want you to think about, okay? As as simplistic as that is, that is how you got the word of God. This, this is how you got the Bible. I think there's a little bit of a misnomer in the church because we don't talk about this a lot that the way we got our Bible is God kind of showed up in a dream one day to a guy and said, all right, write this down just like I say it. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, how do you spell Nebuchadnezzar, God? Is that two Zs? Is that, how is that? Go, thus saith the Lord. And, and God just kind of dictates and the writer just kind of writes down what God said. Did I get this right? You want to proofread it? That's not how we got the scripture, all right? Now, there are times where God says, write this down, like the 10 commandments to Moses or to Jeremiah or Isaiah, where he says, write it down just like this. But most of the time, the way we got the Bible is that God superimposed by his spirit on human authors and he used their personalities and he used their education and he used their background and he used their circumstances to copy down without error his perfect word. So here, you, what you have happening on here is whether Peter is dictating to Silas or Peter is just writing it himself, is that God is actually moving through Peter's pen and he is copying down without error his perfect word. This is what Peter says in 2 Peter. He says that there's no prophecy of scripture that comes from one's own interpretation. Someone doesn't just sit down and say, I think I need to write a book of the Bible. What do you think? Yeah. Okay. What should I write? Don't do this. That's not how it worked. Is that God uses the person. He uses their gifts, their personalities, their experiences. And they don't, whether they know it or not, he is writing his perfect word through their pen. And then that letter was taken and copied and copied and copied. And 2,000 years later, here we go. We got the word of God. That's what happened. That men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that word carried along, it's the same word it's used in the book of Acts of a boat, a sailboat, that the wind carries it along, that it is moved by the wind. That's what he's saying here, that God is moving through Peter to copy down his word, not just for a bunch of churches in Asia Minor, but for us today, that God spoke through the apostle Peter and he used his personality, his abrasiveness, his, his kind of speak firstness. This is why when you read the scriptures in the original languages, you can see that John 
writes a lot different than Peter, who writes a lot different than Matthew, who writes a lot different than Paul. Their style, their language is different because God is using these people to copy down his word. And he says, I have been exhorting, I have been declaring that this is the true grace of God. What is the true grace? Everything I've written so far. These five chapters, this is God's word. This is God's truth. So stand firm in it. Stand, don't be movable. Don't be, don't compromise. Don't try to be secret agent Christian. Don't try to be angry Christian. Don't try to blend in. You stand firm in this which I have written to you, this truth that comes ultimately from the, the breath, the, the nostrils of God, so to speak, it is God breathe. And I was thinking about it this week. The book of First Peter, it, it really, it covers everything you need to know about the Christian life, about who God is. It doesn't cover everything there is to know, but it covers everything that you need to know about God, about Jesus, about how to live is in these five little chapters. Everything. If you just had one book of the Bible, First Peter would be enough. It, it just really would. It tells you, think about it. It tells you uh, everything you need to know about God, that God is triune starts off that you were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. You have the Trinity right there in the beginning. You have the fact that if you address as Father the one who impartially judges, you have the idea that, you, that God is your Father. You know what you need to know about God. You know what you need to know about the work of Christ. What did Jesus actually do? He suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust. That he bore your sins in his body on the tree. That because of him, you have a living hope, what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know about his death. You know about his substitutionary atonement. You know about his resurrection. All he accomplished from this book. You know about your identity, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What it means to be an exile. That you were chosen before the foundation of the world. You were chosen. That you were beloved by God. That you have an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that will not fade away, that is reserved in heaven for you, protected by the power of God through faith. That's what you have, that's who you are. That you are a priest, a holy nation, right? A royal priesthood. That you are a living stone. That you are being built into this spiritual house built upon what? The cornerstone who is Jesus. Why? So that you would declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are his possession. You've been ransomed from your futile way of life. That's who you are. Stand in that. He's taught us a lot on how we're to behave, which is not always our most favorite parts of the book, right? What does he say? Put away malice, deceit, slander, hypocrisy, envy, how are we doing there? We could probably sit there for a while, couldn't we? And instead of those, what, long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow? That's what he's told us to do. He said, abstain from fleshly lusts. Why? Because they wage war against your soul. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Why? So that they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. He's, he's told you how to deal with Government officials that you do not agree with. Some of you need to remind, be reminded of this. How do you deal with a government that is that's not doing what you think they should do or not doing what you think God should do? What does he say? Be a good citizen. Be a good citizen. Well, how do I deal with a boss who's a jerk or a teacher who's unfair or a neighbor 
who is, is, is just unkind. Be a great worker. Be a great neighbor. Do your job. Do it well. well what do I do? How am I supposed to live in my home? Husbands, you love your wives. Wives, you respect your husbands. Why? Because it's a picture of the gospel. What do I do when I'm treated badly, when it's unfair, when it's, it's, I've been treated poorly and I didn't do anything wrong? He says, don't repay them. Instead, bless them. Pray for them. Why? Because the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous. His ear attends their prayer. How should I treat everyone? Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. That's what you do. What about the church? Love one another. Serve one another. Clothe yourself with humility towards one another. You need anything else? I mean, that that's covers a lot of it. It's not everything we need to know, but it's enough, isn't it? About God, about the work of Jesus, about uh, our identity, about how to behave. How about when life is hard, when it's, it's challenging? What do we do there? Don't be surprised when the fire deal you has come upon you for your testing. You're being refined. You're being tested. It's being revealed, right? Just make sure you don't suffer for being a moron, Remember? If you're gonna suffer, suffer for doing what is good, not for being a murderer, a thief, a troublesome meddler, an evildoer. If you're gonna suffer, make sure you're suffering for what is good, like Jesus, because he's the example, right? Make sure you're aware that you have an enemy and he desires to tear you to shreds. He wants to destroy your kids. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your testimony at work. He wants to destroy your testimony with your friends and in your fraternity and in your college campuses. He wants to tear you up, but you can resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by every single person in this room. Nobody is being picked on. It's not, all. Oh, everyone else has a great. No, everyone is facing the same thing, right? That's how we handle it. And what about the future? Has he told us anything about the future? Well, he told us that it's, the end of all things is near. So we do what? Be awake, be aware, so that you can pray, so that you can serve, so that you can love. Because he says the chief shepherd is coming back soon, right? That God will judge the living and the dead. That the grass withers, that the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so after you've been tested for a little while, your faith, when it's proved genuine, will receive glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that the God of all grace will himself perfect, confirm, establish, and strengthen you. That's what he said. That's a summary. That's the last 15 weeks. That's everything you need. We could start First Peter. Next week, we're doing a new series. It's called First Peter. Turn to First Peter 1. We could go right through it again and cover the same thing. It's enough. But what Peter is saying here is, I've written to you all these things. Stand firm in them. Don't move. Be reminded of them. Continue to pursue them. And here's, here's the point. Here's what I want us to get. If we're gonna be exiles, we gotta remember the church stands on the word of God. Period, end of story. The church stands on God's word. How, you, how do you function as an exile in a world? You stand on the truth of scripture. And this is why this is important. Because it's true. There's two, you see it in our culture and you see it, it's creeping into the church. 
and especially young folks, you need to, you need to hear this because as time, if, as the end gets nearer, this is going to happen more and more. You're going to hear things that sound Christian, but really what they're going to be saying is the same thing that Satan's been saying since Genesis chapter three. Did God really say? Isn't that what he said to Adam and Eve? Did God really say? Did God really say that marriage is supposed to be about this? Did God really say that purity is supposed to be about this? Did God really say that this is, Jesus is the only, did God really say? And when you start hearing that, your ears should go up because that's what the enemy does. He causes you to doubt what God says. If this has any error in it, then God is not God because if God is not true, then he's not God. If it's either all true or none of it is. And the church stands. This is why it's so vital, not just for me to preach the Bible on Sunday, yes, but for you to renew your mind in scripture. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may know what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. How do you know what is truth and error? What does God say? How do I know if this is sin or not? What does God say? That's where we go. This is why you need to be reading it. This is why you need to be memorizing it. This is why you need to be listening to podcasts and sermons and things that, that inform you of who God is and what he has said. If we're gonna function as exiles, we stand in the word of God. That's the first thing, first encouragement. Let's continue real quick. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Who is she and why is she in Babylon? That's the question we gotta ask. Well, she is not actually a she. She is a church. And she is not actually in the city of Babylon. By this time, Babylon was like an irrelevant little town on Euphrates River. Now, 600 years earlier, Babylon was like New York City. It was like the capital of the world. But at this point, the Babylonian Empire has been destroyed, uh, and so was the Medes and the Persians, and everyone afterwards. Now it's the Roman Empire. So Babylon itself is irrelevant. So why does he say she who was in Babylon? Why so cryptic? couple reasons. Number one, because he's not going to tell you, oh, by the way, there's a church, Nero, meeting right under your nose. It's down on 5th and Main. Go visit us. Our services are at 1030. Because they're, they're kind of under the radar, right? Because there's opposition. But Babylon is also symbolic in the scripture for really those who were opposed to God and his people. It's like the symbol of worldliness. So in Revelation, it's Babylon has fallen. Babylon has fallen. It's, a, it's like us, we say, Sin City, Vegas. You know, the church in Vegas, and we'd get, oh, it's a bad place, right? That's his idea. And there's only one city in this time frame that fits the idea. And it's actually where history says that, that Peter is actually writing from. And that's the city of Rome. The city of Rome. Wicked idolatry, Caesar who demands worship. It's gonna, in a, just a couple short years, it's gonna be the heart of persecution of the church. So he's saying the church that is in Rome and the most wicked place in the world is the one who is chosen, just like you were chosen, sends you greetings. And here's the reminder for us is that the church thrives in challenging circumstances, right? You would, you would say, oh, I can't believe there's a church in Rome. I mean, of all places, that's the most wicked place. That's the point. And it's actually meeting right under Nero's nose. And actually, when Paul writes his letter to the Romans, he says, the church that's in Caesar's house. There's actually a, a group of people that are in Caesar's household that are followers of Jesus because the church thrives in the darkest places because that's what we're supposed to do because the gates of hell will not prevail against it, because the spirit of God is moving even in difficult places. And, and the idea is this, we live, in, we live in, a, in a, a day when Christians are all, oh, woe is me, the government's so bad, 
My campus at SCAD is so bad. My office is so bad. My baseball team is so bad. Everything's so bad. And, and the response should be, that's great. You tell me the only Christian you know in your class at SCAD, that's awesome. You tell me you're the only believer at your office of perverts, that's awesome. Because the church shines when it's the most dark. This, this, it's, you have been, you've been raised up for such a time as this. This is our time, CBC. For such a time as this, you have been placed where you are, at your office, in your neighborhood, in your college group, wherever it is, so that you would shine. That's why we're here. So no more, woe is me, America's so bad. Great. That means the church should be that much more distinct and shining so that when they see your good works, they'll glorify God in the day of visitation. That is the point. So no one walking out saying, oh, woe is me, inflation's at 7%. Great. If you can be generous to other people and when inflation is bad and when everything is bad, that shines. When everyone else is foul mouth this and potty mouth this and doing this, when you're not, that shines. That's the point. The church thrives in darkness, that you were, you were meant to do so, right? Don't forget that. You're in exile. Exiles shine. Next part. She who is in Babylon likewise chosen sends greetings, and so does Mark, my son. This is not his real son, his, his biological son, but he's, his, he's kind of the mentor. Uh, he's kind of his protege. Mark is Peter's protege. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you know Mark's story, but many of you are not. You got to read through the, the book of Acts to get it. Here's kind of the, the, the high level. So there's a man named Paul, the apostle, and him and Barnabas go on a missionary journey, the first missionary journey ever, right? They leave from Antioch and they bring a young guy, a young buck along with him. His name is Mark. Things get tough not long after they start. And Mark is quite honestly, at this point in his life, he's kind of a mama's boy. He's a weak sauce. He's kind of like, I miss my mom, I miss my mom. And so what happens is he leaves them in the middle of the journey and he goes home and cries to mama. It's so hard being with Paul and Barnabas. And he leaves them. Paul and Barnabas finish the missionary journey. They come back to Antioch. They celebrate all these churches that have been planted. A couple years later, Paul's like, man, we need to go see those churches, see how they're doing. We need to go check on them, encourage them. And Barnabas is like, great, I'll get my backpack and I'll go get Mark. And Paul says, you are not bringing that mama's boy with us. He's a quitter. He's discouraging. We're not bringing him. Barnabas says, no, 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 he's coming with us. And Paul says, no, he's not. And they go back and forth and they have such a sharp disagreement. This is Apostle Paul. He says, fine, you want Mark? You take Mark. And he takes a man named Silas. Same guy right here. And he goes on a second missionary journey and Barnabas takes Mark and they go to a different direction. Here we are 20 years later. This is what I love the scripture, so honest. Think about that first time where here's Mark. Mark's with Peter and in walks Silas. And Silas like, hey, I'm Silas, how you doing? Oh, hi, I'm Mark. Oh, you're Mark. I've heard all about you from Paul. Awkward conversation, right? But what happened at some point in Mark's life, he grew up. He became bold. He became courageous, probably because Barnabas was such a good mentor to him. And now here's these two people. He he was scared on his first missionary journey. Now he is in the middle of Sin City with Peter. And Peter, he gets attention wherever he goes, but he's not afraid anymore. He's, He's been emboldened. In fact, at the end of Paul's life, if you read his last letter, 2 Timothy, 
He's writing to Timothy, his protege, and he says, hey, by the way, please bring me Mark because he is useful to me. Something happened in Mark's life and he was changed and now he's bold. And not only did God restore and redeem him there, uh, guess what else Mark gets to do? I mean, you have four gospels. They're not Matthew, Peter, Luke, and John. They're not Matthew, Paul, Luke, and John. It's what? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This quitter, this weak sauce, this mama's boy gets to write one of the four gospels. See, that's what God does. He restores and redeems. And this is the third encouragement to us as exiles. The church is a redeemed people. We are not a perfect people. And if you've had some mark event in your life, some big disappointment, some failure on a, a massive level, which you need to hear this morning from Mark is that you, God's not done with you. Just because you failed, just because you, you're on your second marriage, just because your kids are gone now, just because you did some crazy thing back when you were 22 years old and you're still living under that guilt, you need to know that if you are in Christ, that God can use that. He can redeem that. He can restore that the, the feels that the locust ate. He can grow those again. He can redeem those years for those who repent. And you don't need to sit. That's what the accuser of the brethren wants you to think. He wants you to think, look what you did. And some of you are still living in some failure that you did 15 years ago. What if Mark would have sat there for 15 years and said, I failed, I failed. Then we would have three gospels, not four, right? This is what God does, he redeems. And the flip side is this. Maybe you haven't had some big failure, but maybe you know someone who has and now they've kind of come back and you look at them and you're like, yeah, well, I'm glad I didn't do what they did. And there's a little arrogance. What I've seen in the church is that we love grace when it's for us. But when it's for that guy, that gal, we don't love that. We're like, no, 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 you, you, you need to sit over there as a second-class citizen because you did X or Y. And that's not the gospel. And that is not the church of Jesus. The church of Jesus is, what, is the, what does the father do to the prodigal son? He puts his ring on him. He kills the fattened calf and he celebrates. Why? Because my son is home. And that's what we do. Someone's failed? Yes. They come back, they repent. They're one of us. That we are a, there's nobody here that has not blown it. And that has not even today probably. This is a redeemed people, not a perfect people. And that's the only way to function as exiles because if you think you're gonna be perfect, you think everyone else is gonna be perfect, you will be disappointed. That's why we look to the one who has not ever disappointed us, right? That's the third thing. One more. He closes it saying this. Greet one another with a kiss of love. It's very cultural, right? We don't do that. We do our, you know, kind of the COVID bump now. For those of you who are like, oh yeah, I don't wanna get near to you. But you know, that, so greet one another with a COVID fist bump. I don't know. The idea is we love each other, right? But he closes then, he says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace. This is how he started the letter, by the way. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the fullest measure. But he gives that, that incredibly important prepositional phrase. Peace to a what? You are in Christ. In the end, there's only peace if you meet this one criteria, you are in Christ. It is part of who you are, who our identity is, that we are in Christ. Those who are being baptized this morning, 
They are celebrating, and this is going to be a picture of the fact they are in Christ. They are united with him in his death. That's what it pictures when they go down. They're united with him in his resurrection. That's what it pictures when they come out. They are in Christ, and it means a ton of things. They're in Christ, they're in the church, they're in the water. They're gonna wear a shirt that says, "All I'm in. That's what that means. But there's, there's far more implications, but one of the biggest is this. If you are in Christ, you have peace with God. Peace with God, because you were an enemy of God. You were under his wrath. And if you were in Christ now, God no longer looks at you as an enemy. He no longer looks at you as sinful and separated. When he looks at you, he sees Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ, right? That's what it means to be in. And there's only peace, ultimately, if that is true. And he doesn't promise peace from chaos. We've seen a whole book. You're not promising peace from trouble. He's promising peace in those troubles. Why? Because you have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And, and the question, and I'll close with this. It's the only question that really matters after this series, ultimately, because it's an eternal question. Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Because many will see in the next series we start next week, a couple of weeks from now, Many will say in the last day, Lord, Lord, didn't I go to CBC? Didn't I serve in the nursery? Didn't I give money to Wycliffe? Didn't I go to community group? Didn't I serve? Didn't I this? Didn't I listen to Christian radio? And Jesus will say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. We're not talking about being a good person. We're not talking about getting baptized. We're talking about you putting your entire faith in Christ and what he has accomplished for you on the cross and in his death and his resurrection. That's what it means to be in Christ. That you turn from your sin, that's called repentance, and you put your faith in him. That's being in Christ. And if you're trying to earn your way, give some money, go to church, be a good Southerner, whatever, that's not being in Christ, right? Are you in Christ? Christ? Does his spirit dwell in you? And if you have questions and you're wrestling with that, come talk to us. Again, it's the only thing that matters. I don't care if you memorize 1 Peter in the book of Romans. If you're not in Christ, nothing else matters. It really doesn't. So we'd love to talk to you about that, right? The church stands on the word of God. That's where we stand. That's where we rest. That's where we put our hope in what he says is true. Um, the church thrives in dark circumstances because that's where we were called to be. Uh, we, we're, we were there. The church is filled with redeemed people. And the church has peace ultimately because of Jesus. So we're gonna celebrate together as these come forward. These, these folks that are coming, they're already Christian. They've already professed their faith. They're just coming in obedience to the word of God to tell you, hey, I'm in. And so we're gonna celebrate with them. We are a church. If you're a guest, we celebrate, we smile we rejoice with them. So if you're used to not doing that, and, and today will be refreshing for you, I hope. But cheer for them, uh, rejoice with them as they proclaim their faith in Christ. Let me pray, we'll sing a song, and then they'll come and you'll hear some of their stories. Father, thank you for those who have, in obedience to your word, come this morning to uh, identify publicly with you. Thank you for their stories, each one unique, but you uh, have redeemed them and you chose them before the foundation of the world. Uh, to follow you, to be sanctified by your spirit and to obey you. And so this is just one of many steps of obedience for them. I pray for our church that this, this series on being exiles would encourage us, that we'd come back to it as we need to, that we'd be reminded of who we are, of what you've done and what you have called us to do. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. You guys can stand.